You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as at Meribah as on the day at Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof though they had seen my work for 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Acts 2 verse 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. We're continuing our series uh, uh, discussing what it looks like to truly belong in an age of severe political division, uh, shallow digital friendships. Uh, We live in an age of overstimulation, and all of these really serve to lead us to get this sense of deep isolation and loneliness. It's, It's very common to be surrounded by countless people, even maybe right now, and feel very alone. We're, we're very connected, we're hyper-connected, and yet we live in a very lonely age, a very isolating time. And so what we're doing is we're describing what it means to belong. And we're doing that by communicating a very ancient and very timeless vision found in the Holy Scriptures. And it's a vision that's been carried down throughout Christian history. Uh, throughout the series, we are not going to give you new things. This is not a new approach to belonging, but one that we can we can see has withstood the test of time. And it is none other than membership to the local church. The gift that God has extended in becoming a member of the local church, belonging to his people. And uh, we've seen in the book of Acts that in response to all that God is and all that God has done for humanity through the Messiah, the Christ Jesus, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, that he bore our sins, that he has removed the condemnation that was upon us, It tells us about the early church, verse 42, it says this, and they devoted themselves, there it is, and they devoted themselves. In response to all that God is and all that God 
has done for humanity through Jesus, their response was to devote themselves. It's very interesting, the first description of the church that is formed as a result of the Spirit of God being poured out on Pentecost is that of a devoted church. It's not an erratic church. It's not a particularly nomadic church. It is a devoted people. And as the writer of Acts goes on, he describes the church uh, like this. In verse 43, it tells us that awe came upon every soul. Awe came upon every soul. And as a result, verse 47, they were praising God. And so here's what we're seeing. We're seeing this entire community has this shared experience of overwhelming awe. And I love this. It says every soul. So it's not just the charismatic. Every church has their charismatic members and then the not so charismatic members. It's not the people that are particularly in tune with their emotions. But the writer of Acts says that awe came upon every soul. Every soul has this, receives this life-changing glimpse of the goodness and the glory of God. How do you know that the Spirit of God is at work in your life? How do you know that you've received a glimpse of the goodness and glory of God? Praise. Praise is the result. Praise is the litmus test of contact, that life-changing contact with the Spirit of God. Sam Storms defines praise like this. Praise, it would seem, is the joyful response of all that we are in adoration and celebration of all that God is. In praise, we announce and we declare the worth and majesty and marvel of who God is and what he has done. It's a response of all that we are to all that God is and all that God has done for us. So here's my main uh, point here. The sort of thesis statement is this. The church has been and will always be a community that worships together. The church has always been and always will be a church, or rather a community that worships together. And so what we're talking about today, if you haven't figured it out, is worship. In years past, we've talked about different dynamics of worship. We talked about our own individual expressions of worship. We've talked about all of life is worship. But today, we're going to talk about worshiping together, specifically corporate worship, which we've already experienced today, and we will continue to experience uh, this morning. The first thing, if you're taking notes, to know is this. Worship is welcoming. Worship is welcoming. As we see in Psalm 95, an invitation to join the believing community is paired with an invitation to worship. Look at me in verses 1 and 2. Oh, come. So there's the invitation. Come on. Come near. Gather around. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Let's, come on, let's, let's sing. A call to belong to the community of God means a call, you ready, to join the choir. A call to belong to the community of God is a call to join the choir. Here's the beautiful thing. It does not take skill or particular stage presence or beauty to make a joyful noise to the Lord. To make a joyful noise to the Lord. There's no skill set demanded. You don't need to fit the look, sing on key or in pitch or anything like that or play an instrument. The call to belong is a call to join the choir. Come, let us sing to the rock of our salvation. 
Anyone and everyone who will come, lift up your voice and participate. See, worship becomes a really powerful means by which God draws us to himself and to one another. An extremely unifying avenue. And uh, I experienced this as my family and I traveled uh, over this summer. We took some, some time off, almost two months off on sabbatical. And what we did was we visited other churches here in town and, and elsewhere. And uh, some of the churches that we visited were very similar to here. And then other churches were just very, very different. And uh, I got to experience what many of you have experienced over the last decade, where you, when you started attending reality, that sense of not knowing anyone, that sense of like, what's going on here? What's next? Am I supposed to be standing right now? Am I allowed to come get communion? Uh, I'm a first time guest. Are they going to like make me stand up and like raise my hand? Just all the, all the, the you know, the weird things of like visiting a, a church. And if I could be honest, it was a little bit disorienting at times. Like, what, I'm, I'm, I, I, I thought I knew the ropes, and I'm sitting here in a very new environment. I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. But here's the thing. There was this extremely unifying and centering, almost transcendent moment as we were invited to join with the church and to sing. And as we stood and we sang with these various churches, we experienced this sense of extreme familiarity even when we didn't even know the songs. Like, I, I don't know the songs, but I'm just jumping all the way in, and I'm going to move my mouth until I pick it up. And, but there was this extremely familiar uh, moment, this, this feeling as, as if I was among family, that we were, like, home away from home. And it reminded me that we have been welcomed into something that is much bigger than ourselves. This, this call to join in singing, with, uh, singing to God and joining in corporate worship is a, is a welcome to join something that is much bigger than our lives. And here's the thing. When, when we belong to the church, it's not that we just start our own little expression of praise over here, our own little isolated corner of praise. There's something much bigger and so, something far more rooted occurring. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. God has prepared for himself one great song of praise throughout eternity. So picture that song just spanning across eternity. And those who enter the community of God join this song. It's the song that, quote, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy at the creation of the world. It's the victory song of the children of Israel after passing through the Red Sea. The Magnificat of Mary after the Annunciation. The song of Paul and Silas in the night of prison. The song of the singers on the sea of glass after their rescue. The, quote, song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. It is the song of the heavenly fellowship. This beautiful, diverse, multilingual song that has been stretched out into eternity far beyond us into the book of Revelation. So joining the church means joining that song that continues throughout eternity. It means being a part of something that is much bigger than our little time and our little place. And here's the beautiful, here's the beautiful thing about this psalm. You are welcome to be a part of that as well. Hear that psalmist speaking directly to you, transcending time and space and saying, come and sing. Come and join. The second thing to note is this. Worship is engaging. Worship is engaging. So let's, let's just make this really clear. We don't gather to be entertained. Um, you guys still there? Okay. 
It was like the, on the phone where like you could, it's clear they put you on mute. Are you going to the bathroom right now? What's going on? Um, we do not gather to be entertained. We gather to be engaged. We gather to engage. And worship is never intended to be simply a spectacle. It is to be marked by participation. We prepare to participate. We begin our preparation long before we stumble in here at 10.30 and grab our coffee and try to wake up. We as the people of God prepare our hearts, maybe Saturday night or in the weeks, the week leading up to our gathering, because it is something that we are called to engage in. As we look at the psalm, it's evident that worship is something that engages us, and it engages our whole being. So let's look at how worship engages our whole being. First, worship engages our emotions. Look at me in verse 2. Let us make a what? Joyful noise. Let us make a joyful noise. As we gather to worship, it engages some of the deepest parts of our emotions. It engages our joy. We express ourselves in joy. In times of our worship, we express ourselves in lament and confession. We're going into the Advent season pretty soon. We express deep senses of longing and anticipation and that sort of ancient angst of awaiting our Messiah. Now, the truth is, some of us are so emotionally guarded. Maybe it's because someone compromised our trust in the past, or maybe We've been so deeply hurt and deeply wounded. I, I don't know. But for many of us, we are, we are emotionally guarded to the point where we don't actually allow ourselves to go here. As we gather with the church, we don't allow ourselves to emotionally engage, to experience these deep range of emotions that we see, for instance, in the book of Psalms. But here's the thing. If you are willing to open yourself up, there's something about our times of worship that will pluck your heartstrings. And so here, here's, here's the, the call, the charge. If you come to this church and you gather regularly and there are long periods of time where you feel emotionally disengaged, your automatic response should not be that there's something wrong with the worship or there's something wrong with the person next to you or there's something wrong with the preaching. Or there's something wrong with the atmosphere. Our natural assumption is, God, there is hardness of heart right now. And Lord, I'm asking that you would expose why I'm guarded right now from experiencing what the Bible says I should be experiencing. We, we, we so easily want to, we, we so quickly want to put the blame out there. But what the Bible would call us to do is first examine our own hearts. And because our hearts are so stinking elusive, it's probably a good idea, uh, idea just to ask God, God, would you search my heart? Would you reveal if there's anything hard in me, if there's any callous, if there's anything that is stopping me from being moved? Because I read about people being moved, and I'm not being moved, and I'm just going to humbly acknowledge the problem is probably me. The problem is probably me. Secondly, worship engages our body. Verse 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker. And so as we look at the Scriptures, we see many various physical postures of praise. Okay, there's not a one-size-fits-all. There is times of sitting. There is times of kneeling. There are times of standing. There are times for raising our arms high. Even in Luke, the tax collector just beats his chest. Like, that's, that's all he's got, just beating the chest. There are various physical expressions of praise. We even see that sometimes when people are in the presence of God, they just fall down as if dead. That's cool too. <laughs> we, 
we're, we're probably going to check your pulse if that happens, but it, it happens. And so there are, there are various multiple, many postures of praise that are faithful. But here, listen to me, please. Unresponsiveness and being unengaged is an unacceptable posture of praise. There are many various. Please hear me. Like if you're charismatic or you're not, there are many various expressions of praise. Unresponsiveness, indifference towards this God is not an acceptable form of praise for the believer. And here's the thing, there's only so much that we can blame on our personality. Okay, there, there's a lot of us that is like, well, I'm just a really reserved individual. I'm extremely introverted. Oh, really? Because I remember seeing you at the Super Bowl. And uh, you looked pretty revved up there. So here's the thing, no matter what our disposition, what our personality is like, there is that one thing or those things in our life that get our hearts racing. Maybe it's entertainment. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's music. Maybe it's vice. Maybe it's babies. Maybe it's affection. Whatever the case is, there are, there's that thing and those things that get our heart racing. And we can't stand behind this excuse, well, I just have a calm demeanor. The third is this. Worship engages. You guys still with me? Yeah. Worship engages our heart. Do not harden your heart. So here's the thing. The conclusion here is that a life of praise keeps our hearts soft and moldable. Why is worship important? Because it keeps our, our hearts in a, in a posture of soft and, uh, softness and moldability before God in the hands of God. And so we step back and we see the, sort of the sweep of the psalm and we see engaging all these various parts of our lives, our heart, our body, and our, our emotions all in one. Worship was never intended to be reduced to a single expression, but to encompass our entire being, to encompass all that we are, to be enraptured, mind and body and soul. In fact, that's the great command, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, saying, it is all yours, all of me, in response to who you are and what you've done. In the book of Mark, it records that there are these Pharisees and scribes that come and gather around Jesus and begin to question him. And there's this point where Jesus responds to them in Mark chapter 7 and says this. He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And so we step back and we see that according to Jesus, lip service without heart leads to hypocrisy. Lip service without heart leads to hypocrisy. And then we begin to see that there are other disconnects that happen, disconnections that happen. Body without emotions, that leads to apathy. Emotions without expression leads to lethargy. And on and on and on. Worship breaks down when we limit what we will offer to God. And what happens is when we reduce it down to something, to some single expression of worship, what ends up happening is we live these deeply divided lives. See, what we do is we divide worship here that begins to trickle into the rest of our lives. And we begin to say things like, I love the Lord, I'll give him my heart, but I'm not going to give him my body. Or he's Lord over everything in my life except my wallet. Or you are first in my life, except when it comes to work. We, what we do here, when we divide here, it ends up trickling into the rest of our lives. And we are not to offer God part of ourselves, but all of ourselves. 
And so here's the question. Have you offered all that you are to God? Are you offering all that you are in response to all that God is and all that God has done through Christ for you? The third thing is this. Worship is freeing. Worship frees us. Look at me in verses 3 through 5. For the Lord is a great God. Can I get an amen? amen? All right, you can amen the word. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. So here's what the psalmist is doing. The psalmist is giving us our ongoing reason for worship. And here it is, the greatness of God. Regardless of what we feel like or the baggage that we bring in here, God is always worthy because God is always great. And when we hinge our worship on the greatness of God, there is always reason for worship. Amen? Okay, so first vital step of worship, worship, get your attention on God. It's not get it on ourselves, or beat ourselves up, or be condemned. Get your attention on the glory and grandeur of God. Secondly, the, there's an extremely beneficial byproduct that we see here in Psalm 95 when we get our attention on God. And it has to do with being swept up into the presence of God. Worship draws us outside of ourselves. Worship draws us outside of our sin. Worship drives us out, uh, draws us outside of our fears and out of our anxieties and out of our hates and out of our um, self-consciousness and into the presence of God. And so we see that we're called into the presence of this God, the rock of our salvation. So through worship, we are drawn out of the instability of our broken life and into the stability of the rock of our salvation. Here, when we're caught up inside navel-gazing, no transformation ever occurs navel-gazing. We are swept up in our emotions. We're swept up in our anxieties. We're swept up in our fear. And that's just a downward spiral. But worship draws us outside of ourselves into the stability of being placed on the rock of our salvation. And it's freeing. We begin to see the vastness of God. And when we begin to see the vastness of God, we begin to see the smallness of ourselves. We begin to see that we are very small. And before you object, let me just remind you of how much we as people actually value being small. It's why people continue to go visit the Grand Canyon. It's why people continue to this day to stare off into the ocean, ocean into the vastness of the ocean, and feel very small. It's why people go up to the very top of the, of the highest buildings in cities. It's why we drive fast cars. It's why we crave epic adventure. It's why our kids still dream of going into outer space. Because we were hardwired for awe. We were designed and created to see the king above all gods, to behold the hands that formed the earth and hold all things together, and to come into the presence of true greatness, and there in the presence of true greatness feel very, very small. Feel very, very small. And there in our smallness, feel strangely alive and feel strangely free. See, in a world uh, where we're constantly told, and maybe you even tell your children this, that we need to shine, that we're a unique snowflake among snowflakes, 
that we were created for the center stage. It's our shot to, to shine and, and to be great. What we do not realize is, is that this pressure to be the star, this pressure to be center stage, this pressure to be great is killing us. It's crushing us. We are being destroyed under the weight of being great. Why? Because it was a role that we were never designed to fill. Our drive to be great, this, this drive to be on the center stage of life is actually slowly draining our humanity out of us. It's the quickest way to, to forfeit our humanity. And yet, look what the psalmist is doing here. The psalmist is calling us into the presence of God with thanksgiving. And as he's welcoming us back into the presence of God with thanksgiving, he is simultaneously welcoming us back into our humanity to rediscover who we are, to rediscover who God has created us, uh, to rediscover what we've been redeemed for, to rediscover the freedom and the safety and the life and the being able to just simply breathe and exhale when we are small and God is great. John the Baptist knew this. He said it way more simple and profound than I could. He said in John 30, he must increase and I must decrease. Turn that into a prayer. God, give me an all-consuming, bigger vision of who, who you are and a smaller vision of myself. I have flip-flopped my life where you are small, God, and I am great. He must increase and I must decrease. Amen? Amen. I love how G.K. Chesterton put it. How much happier you would be if you only knew that people cared nothing about you? How much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it? If you could really look at other men with common curiosity and pleasure. If you could see them walking as they are in their sunny selfishness and in their indifference. You would begin to be interested in them because they're not interested in you. You would break out of this tiny, tawdry theater in which you're your own, or I'm sorry, which your own little plot is always being played, and you would find yourself under a freer sky in a street full of splendid strangers. What if we just like walked out into the rest of our lives and just realized that people are probably not watching? And you are just one little snowflake among many snowflakes. There's something life-giving and freeing about being just one voice among many. Why, why, why is worship life-giving? Because, in a sense, we're lost in the crowd. And as detrimental as that may sound to the 21st century mind, there's actually some profound beauty here. Just one voice among many. I'm not center stage here. In fact, I can hear my brothers and sisters louder than I can hear me. What corporate worship does is it reminds us that we don't take the lead in life. That we are not center stage in this great act of life. That God is at the center stage. And God fills that role perfectly. And the burden of having to shine and the burden of having to be great has been lifted from us. Because God is great enough for all of us. For all of us. And now through faith in Jesus Christ and worship to our King, we can be part of a lineage of saints 
from every age praising God. Being reminded that we're not just joining brothers and sisters here. We're, we're joining brothers and sisters across the city and across the state and across this nation and across the globe and across all time and space into eternity. That there in my smallness is where I really fit and really belong. The fourth thing is this. Worship is informing. Verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice... Pause. <laughs> Today, if you hear his voice. Now, I have to admit, I've read Psalm 95 more times than I could count. And this is something that I've missed every single time until preparing for this message. There is a strange, if you notice, there's a strange connection between lifting up our voice to God in praise and now beginning to hear God's voice. Isn't that interesting? This psalm begins, lift up your voice, lift up your voice, let us sing, let us sing. I can't even count how many times we're told to lift up our voice and sing. And yet here in verse 7, we're told, listen. Praise, praise, sing, sing, lift up your voice, listen. What's going on? Here, here's my best attempt at explaining what's going on here. That there is something that we see and hear and experience in corporate worship that is just simply irreplaceable. That we just cannot experience anywhere else. There is a unique way in which worship and the liturgy of the church gets the gospel, the pronouncement of God's grace and truth deep into our minds and deep into our hearts. Studies have shown that those who learn by hearing will remember about 10% of what they've heard after three months. Okay? So, you know, it's kind of depressing to prepare week in and week out and, and just know that about 90% of what I'm communicating will be lost. But then I'm reminded that I'm called to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. And I serve God and not you. <laughs> but here's the thing. Truth, truth be told, what, what is being communica communicated right now will probably be forgotten if you're the average person. But God has designed um, another means of pressing the truth of his gospel and the truth of his word deep into our hearts and deep into our minds that goes beyond what a sermon can accomplish and goes beyond what your Bible study can accomplish and can even go beyond what your personal devotions can accomplish in a way where the gospel isn't forgotten, in a way in, where the truths of God are not forgotten, and it's through worship. It's through corporate worship. I guarantee that your kids will remember the lyrics to the songs this morning more than what they will remember in their, in their uh, kids' ministry class. And I'm telling you, sometimes that kids' ministry class is way better teaching than up here. Like, they get adult content all, every time. I don't know why I said well, sometimes. Every time the kids' ministry is better content than what's being communicated up here. And I guarantee you that they will remember the songs more than what they remember about the classroom. Because worship has the ability of pressing these truths deep into our hearts. Uh, the Apostle Paul would tell the church in Colossians this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So here's the goal for your life, that the word of Christ would dwell in you richly, that it would so fill your heart to overflowing, to press God's word deep into our hearts. But here's the million dollar question, how? How do we accomplish allowing the word of God to dwell in our hearts richly. Well, he goes immediately on to describe this. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. So here's part of it. And singing psalms 
and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So through the teaching and the proclaiming of the word, but also as we sing to one another. So when I come prepared to teach and you come prepared to sing, we walk away experiencing what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. When I come prepared to teach and you come prepared to sing. See, songs are not just the way that we express, express our uh, emotions to God. It's not just the way that we express our hearts to God. It's actually the way that we get stuff in there. It's the way that we press those truths deep into our hearts. Why does singing matter? Because your discipleship and the discipleship of the person that is sitting next to you that will hear your voice depends on it. Depends on it. Um, something that I have a deep conviction about in my family is that I am the primary disciple, disciple maker of my children. And we have built in a rhythm of singing in our home. And it gets pretty ridiculous sometimes. I mean, it gets, it gets crazy sometimes. Uh, my youngest son, Levi, goes on a doxology solo that lasts like too long and everyone starts laughing and, and then the the purpose is defeated, but it, it, it's amazing. In fact, we, uh, we just ate at Dante's for the first time in like a decade. We forgot Dante's existed. Anyone been to Dante's? Okay. We haven't been there for like a decade, and we're sitting there, and we're like, let's sing the doxology. And all the kids are like, praise God from, like looking around. But we, we have seen how important it is oppressing the truth of God's word deep into their hearts through singing. Through singing. Because your discipleship and the discipleship of the people around you depends, depends upon singing. But here's the thing. Worship not only informs us about God's word, but it also helps inform us about the world around us. This is illustrated in Psalm 73. I love Psalm 73 because it is a very brutally honest uh, confession of the psalmist who has gotten his attention on these people that seem to be succeeding and seem to be blessed, and he's just overcome with envy. It's like the, the ancient version of scrolling through Instagram and just feeling sick to your stomach as all of those friends from high school and college are just doing so much better than you. And the psalmist shares these pretty openly. He, he, he says things like they've got great bodies. <laughs> they earn a ton of money. They eat whatever they want. They stay sleek. They don't worry like we worry. And the more wicked they are, the more rich they get. And he begins to question why he even lives a life of faithfulness to God in the first place. He, in fact, he says in Psalm 73 verse 13, Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? In other words, what the psalmist is saying is this whole following God, obeying God, loving God thing, it doesn't seem to work. It's pointless. They suck, and they're blessed, and I'm dogging it out over here, and I'm afflicted. What's the point? What is the point? So he has this perplexing moment in his life where he just can't make sense of it. And the question is, what does he do about it? And the question for you is, what do you do about it? Where do you go? What do you, where do you turn for clarity in those perplexing moments that we all face? 
This is what the psalmist says in verse 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. I was perplexed and confused until the moment I stepped into the sanctuary and joined with God's people in song. And then I was reminded of the futility of life and the vanity of riches and that God is a just God and the judge of the living and the dead and the eternality that he has welcomed me into, into a riches in his presence that far exceeds any riches the world could ever give me. It's through song that he began to make sense of this perplexing question. And it clicked. Truth is, we're not going to be able to answer every question that plagues humanity. There are going to be questions you take to the grave. But it's only through corporate worship that we can actually gain the kind of perspective that allows us to navigate life well and wisely and even with joy. The fifth and final thing, if you're taking notes, is this. Worship is transforming. James K. Smith says, Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something that we do. It's something that God does to us. Worship is at the heart of discipleship. Why do we put such an emphasis on worship in this church? Because it's at the heart of our discipleship. What's the discipleship plan of this church? Worship is at its heart. The psalm is broken up in, in half. Here's the temptation that every preacher faces when they preach Psalm 95. Is it to cut it in half or not? And most of the time, everyone opts to end it in this weird place right in the middle of verse 7, right before it gets weird. And so that was the temptation, uh, but God helped me to overcome that this week. But here, here's the thing. So I'm trying to make sense of this psalm that does not seem to make sense. Because it's all about worship, and then it takes a really strange turn halfway through verse 7. And what we see contrasted for us is this worshiping community and then this wandering community. Those who worship God with all their hearts and those who have gone astray with their hearts. And what the psalmist is talking about is the nation of Israel during the time of Exodus. A people group who doubted God's goodness and doubted his faithfulness, and as a result, an entire generation forfeited entry into the promised land. They had to be held in the wilderness until an entire generation died out so that the next generation would be brought in. God was bringing his people to a land that he had promised them. He says, it's yours. Wherever the, 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 your, your foot treads, it's going to be yours. God makes a clear and concise promise. And so they're right at the banks. They're ready to go in, and they send spies in. And all of them but two come back and say, no way. They're too big. They're too strong. We're too weak. And God has just led us into a slaughter. God has pulled a fast one on us. We're not going. And so rather than trusting God, they doubted God. Rather than praising God, they begin to groan and complain, grumble and complain. But it's not coincidence that this, this story is paired with this instruction to, to praise. Because here's, here's the backstory. On the journey leading up to this moment, we read of the famous account where the children of Israel, while, while Moses is away, begin to worship the idols of Egypt. They return down the old paths of worship, worshiping lesser things and lesser gods, 
like they did in Egypt. And when, the, when it came time and it mattered most and it was time to go into the promised land, they didn't trust God to go. They just didn't trust him. And so here's the takeaway for us. We either worship our way into God's presence or we worship our way into the wilderness. We are worshiping our way into God's presence or we are worshiping our way into the wilderness, but we are always doing one or the other. The only, other op the only option that we have is one or the other. We are never just sitting static, but either moving further towards the presence of God in worship or further away into the wilderness. In the words of David uh, Foster Wallace, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as an atheist. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everyone worships. The only choice that we have is what are we going to worship? It's not a matter of if you are worshiping, but the matter, the, 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 the question to you right now is what are you worshiping? What are you worshiping? And what we are worshiping will inevitably form our hearts for better or for worse. As one author put it, what we revere, we resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. What you are worshiping right now is either restoring your soul or destroying you. And anything less than God will destroy you. Will destroy you. Worship sex, and it will destroy you. Worship money, and it will destroy you. Worship power, and it will destroy you and the people around you. But worship God, and you will be restored. For these pilgrims, they began to worship lesser things, and as a result, their hearts were led astray. They worshiped their way into deformation. But here's the thing, this idea also comes with hope for the believer because not only does worship have the power to deform our souls, worship has the power to transform our souls. And a really powerful means by which the Holy Spirit will sanctify us and make us more like the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is through worship. I want to close with a passage in the book of 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul says this, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so as we get our attention on God, and we get our attention on the finished work of Jesus Christ, as we behold Jesus in worship, what the Spirit of God is doing is transforming our soul from one degree of glory to the next. It's a promise. Because what we behold, we become. It's a powerful means by which God is forming our souls. Amen? Okay, see, here's what I want to do. I want to call up some friends and some brothers and sisters in this church and ask a few questions and allow them to kind of apply some of these things, and then we will go into our time of, uh, time of, formal time of uh, worship. So I'd like to call forward Josiah Byers and Angie Way, if you're back there. Okay, so Angie, um, the book of Acts tells us that there's this experience where awe comes upon every soul, and there's this shared communal experience of awe that swept through the early church. And so the question um, I'd, I'd like to, you to answer and maybe kind of flesh out here is, how can we 
as a church? How can we as Reality Church uh, Stockton experience that? And, and how and where do we seek that sort of experience? Sure. So, um, well, I think that you can experience it a lot of ways. Um, which is amazing that there's not just like one way to really experience communal worship. Um, but particularly, I think, um, at least for me personally in my life, it reminds me that my faith is not my own. I think especially living and growing up in a very westernized country where um, we really value this independence and um, this kind of individuality, um, that we kind of forget the beauty that is shared in communal worship. Um, our faith, our relationship with God, there is for sure a very personal component of it. But when we worship communally, um, it kind of expands our faith into something greater. I think the temptation is to kind of keep our faith almost like selfishly um, and not share that with others. And in turn, that actually robs us from growing our faith deeper um, and seeing what God is really doing at work among his body. Um, Secondly, I think that just, well, the Bible says uh, all of us are made in God's image, um, and as his creation, our purpose is to glorify him. And by worshiping, in turn, that actually shows different facets of his image. Um, and I mean, the Bible points out so many forms of worship, whether it's through our mouth or through our body or beating our chest, um, dance. Worship is a thing. We don't see it very here often, but I would love to see that. Uh, clapping, shouting, crying. I do that a lot. But um, there are all ways to glorify him. And if we weren't to share in this communal worship, I feel like we would be missing out on that. And that would be really sad. <laughs> Thank you for the answer. Uh, Josiah, what has your experience with worship been? And what were some obstacles that God graced you to overcome? Um, so, uh, I grew up in a, a super conservative church, um, where sort of the, the worship box was very specific. Um, it was acapella only. Um, so I grew up sort of with that in mind. And then in high school, I sort of fell in love with music and dove straight into that. But at the time, it felt like they were two different things. Um, so then... I came to reality and, and sort of saw a marriage of the two of um, expression and um, also worship. And it sort of, it, it, didn't, it didn't blow apart the box. It made the box bigger. Um, so one, one of the challenges I still have is that I'm still, I'm still picking apart that box because I don't believe that it should be in any kind of box whatsoever. I think that anything that focuses us on the Lord can be worship, just like, you know, Angie was talking about. Um, and, you know, like you were saying, every th we all worship something. So if you like things, then you're worshiping something. Mm -hmm. And it just depends on if while you're loving that thing, you're also, like, thinking about God's grace and God's goodness. And, yeah. If you could keep the mic, uh, what are some ways that God has impacted your life and formed your faith through worship and specifically corporate worship? Uh, yeah, definitely. So corporate worship, so it's, there's sort of two answers to that question for me personally. Um, so the first sort of coming full circle, um, because I grew up in a church that was sort of acapella only, one thing that they got right with that is that there's just something extremely powerful about the human voice um, and a specifically being in a room full of, of people singing one song. Um, 
And sort of the other side of that is that I'm on Enneagram 2, <laughs> if you guys know. So I, I super value um, my relationships with people. And so for me specifically, just being like in a room and like being affirmed that the thing that I believe is a thing that everyone believes is really powerful. That's great. Um, I want to read a quote, and then maybe Angie, you could respond to this. Um, Marshall Siegel said this, when God saved us, he returned our souls to sing. He didn't train us in music theory or give us vocal lessons, but he opened our eyes and made us alive. Our mouths look and sound like the same old instrument, but they've been radically and eternally transformed to declare the glory and goodness of our God. So how would you encourage the Christian who maybe feels reluctant uh, to praise God based on maybe their voice or self-consciousness or some other kind of hurdle to, to kind of overcome? Yeah. Uh, so first of all, um, to wake up early on a Sunday morning and come to church and the first thing you do is sing. Uh, I just want to put that out here that like none of our voices in the morning likely are going to be good. <laughs> it doesn't matter your vocal talent or like your musicality. It's just, it's just the morning. Um, but besides that, I just think that if you listen to music of the world, like um, aside from worship, any kind of like something that's out of tune or out of pitch, usually we would either, that would result in mocking or um, it just isn't pleasant. But what God does with worship in particular, which is why I think worship is so crazy and powerful, is that worship, whether to Christians or to non-Christians, is one of the few music that people can listen to, and it could be sung so horribly and done so poorly, but if the heart is there, it still turns hearts. Um, and it inspires fear, and it inspires awe, and it inspires curiosity in who this God is. Um, and that's something really beautiful. You really don't find that anywhere else where it could sound really like you wouldn't want to listen to it again, <laughs> but then you do. <laughs> because it, it speaks to our hearts, and that's something powerful. It literally melts uh, the heart of stone and replaces it with the heart of flesh. Um, and to not take part in that, especially since worship is a command to all of us who call ourselves Christians and redeemed by Christ's blood, that is a command. And we ought to not, again, rob ourselves of that opportunity and um, not allow those around us to also see the work that God has done in our lives just because we're self-conscious of our voices. That's great. Would you guys give Josiah and Angie a hand?